Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, ice houses blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous, and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980 and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units the book and dad will tell us the story behind my version of events it'll be thrilling revelatory and as always very very loose welcome to Loose Units Origins hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins the podcast where I Paul Verhoeven take my dad John Verhoeven through a bunch of cases he solved as a cop back in the 1980s uh, I wrote the book Loose Units, and this is the podcast where every week we go through a chapter of the book. It's like a book club. It's like a book club. It's like a book club. Oh, what a week! The lead up to Christmas is thoroughly exhausting, but we are hanging in there with you. We hope you're doing well, Dad. How are you doing today, Paul? As usual, mm-hmm. I'm fantastic. I feel great. Yeah, I've just had a cold brew coffee. Great in a bottle. Excellent to know. Uh, which is calming me down. Because you know that coffee has the reverse effect. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people just get, they go crazy with coffee. Yeah. I don't. It calms me down. But we've discussed this in the past, so we can move on from there. Mm hmm. But, Paul, um, I, I was in touch with the Guinness Book of Records this morning. You, okay, go on. Yep. Yeah, because uh, I said I'd like to let them know about the world's <laughs> shortest chapter. Fuck off. And, <laughs> and they said. Oh, you're referring to uh, Loose Units Chapter, chapter 8. Chapter 8, yeah. You d- I mean, can I? in my defense, uh, as far as the chapter length goes, I really did want to make people feel smart, okay? I wanted to make people who didn't read much feel really smart, and the best way to do that is occasionally just chuck them a really short chapter. I, I think it's wonderful. Thanks. Um, and I really, really appreciate it because I come home yeah. slaving away in my other jobs mm-hmm. like i've just done a massive hanging job not a person but um some paintings this morning well thank god yeah i came home and i uh and i i do what i'm dutifully told which in this case is to read the chapter mm-hmm. which i love doing because i do it really slowly 
and I read the chapter, and I thought, gee, that was uh, that was quick. And but I didn't count the pages. Sure. And then when we chatted a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. you said to me that it was a very short chapter, and then I realised it must have been because. Yeah, it didn't take that long to read. It's ridiculous, yeah. But Paul, mm. sometimes it's great to have a short chapter because you're very concise, you paint a wonderful picture, and sometimes it's like a bridge, <laughs> your chapters, yeah, where they yeah. take you from one mm-hmm. one sort of situation into another, and well, that can be it, like a bridging chapter. Yeah, Uh I just wanted to kind of make... I did. I just wanted to make people who don't read very often feel really smart. Because if mm. you don't read much and someone says, how's the book going? And you go, oh, man, I burned through four chapters tonight. That's a, that's a good feeling. I was mm. trying to make people feel good, basically. Yeah. But what I've done, ironically, is kind of shoot us... I've, I've shot, I th- see, I my concern, Dad, is that I've shot us in the foot. Because this season of Loose Units is us going through, you know, your version of events behind my version of your version of events, if that makes sense, week by week. And... This week we've got four pages to play with, and it's kind of about well. Let me let me go from the start. Here we go. After such a brazen opening night, the show that was John's induction to station life slipped into monotony fairly quickly. Not that he wasn't over the moon to be away from the academy, but he did receive a crash course in the drudgery of everyday station work. The bread and butter of being a station constable consisted of the following: answering the phones, fingerprinting each prisoner who was brought in and charged. Photographing said prisoners with a powerfully shitty camera jammed onto a flimsy aluminium rod. Filling out prisoners' paperwork, aided by stamps the size of coffee mugs and pens always on the verge of running dry. Now, for listeners who were with us during Dad's time in forensics, that was season two of the show, I believe, called Electric Blue, you know about the fingerprinting stuff. But Dad, is there any way you can make the drudgery of everyday police work, you know, desk work, all this kind of grunt stuff, interesting enough to justify an episode of the podcast can you Most make definitely. this you've opened yep. the pandora's box oh okay i was acutely aware mm. that when prisoners came into the north sydney police station yep and there was i in my immaculate uniform mm-hmm. that i used to iron myself in my little flat yeah on the northern beaches and I, I, I was very proud to wear that uniform. But I also was acutely aware, because if I may say so, and I don't want to come across in any particular way, but I will say to the listeners that I am a very sensitive person. Paul, I was watching a film a few nights ago. Did I tell you the story about the water on the floor? No. So I'm bearing my heart to all the listeners, as I like to do. Christine and I were sitting on our two-seater lounge and we were watching a fairly cheerful Christmas movie. But emotionally, it's it's sort of a lovely, feel-good film. I had tears running down my cheeks. What was the movie? It was a Christmas film. What was the film? Something about Santa in a department store with David Attenborough's brother. Oh, it's Miracle on 34th Street with yes. uh, Richard Attenborough, yes. Yes. And um, when I got up, I'd also been eating Salada biscuits. <laughs> so at my feet yep. were the crumbs from Salada biscuits. Uh-huh. Um, and I went into the kitchen. I always go into the kitchen with the guys of 
getting a glass of water, but what I'm really doing is I'm reaching for a tissue, wiping my eyes, because I found it genuinely touching. And Christine looked down at the pile of crumbs and said to me, what's all this water? And I genuinely didn't realise what it was until later on, and I realised they were my tears. Oh, good that God. That had dropped onto, my, onto the floor mm-hmm. and mixed in with the crumbs of the salada to make a slightly soggy sort of... <laughs> this is a true story. It's not... I mean, No, it's true, pe- and it, it pe- indicates that A, I have the, the ability to produce a lot of tears, which I think <laughs> you'll find medically means I'm pretty healthy, and also that I am a sensitive person, which comes all the way back to whenever a prisoner came into the North Sydney Police Station, I was acutely aware uh-huh. of how they felt. Yep. And I... Did they slip over much in the tears from your... <laughs> Just constant injuries. <laughs> Paul, yeah. I am... My, my point being that I'm a sensitive person and I well, think, sure. yeah, I think yeah. police officers should be... Um, at least some police officers. In, I mean, not. I'm not saying the tactical response group or the civil disobedience order riot squad necessarily should shed tears before they go in and beat the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. But um, if I can just digress slightly, just give me 20 seconds. I'm yep. heading back to the studio, which is my kitchen. Not not half an hour ago, I pulled up in the city at a set of lights. There were two police officers. One was a sergeant. One was a constable. And I looked at them and I thought, if they had to do a foot pursuit, they couldn't run 20 metres without probably having a coronary. The sergeant's shirt was so tight, holding his gut in, that it looked as though the buttons wanted to commit Harry Kerry and just jump off his body. It was frightening. And I just thought to myself, you know... If you're going to wear a police uniform, at least be proud of it. And what's wrong with looking after yourselves? You know, you're supposed to. And I'm going to make a bit of a bit of a sort of a controversial call here. But I love the Victorian police officer's uniform. It's black mm-hmm. and it really, really looks great. And I think the New South Wales police shirt, which is that, that sort of light blue, can accentuate uh, the different body types. Anyway, that's just a little bit of a bit of a side. Well, we'll make sure we do a um, do a fashion special and kind of rate each country's police uniforms. That's I, a, I that love that is a really good idea. I don't hate it. It'd be nice to get kind of a you know Tim Gunn from Project Runway on to kind of you know. I think it's a, it may never have been done, but Paul. So yep. the prisoners come in. Yep. They were taken. There was like a sliding door in the in the bench, and you'd open yep. it up, and they'd come through. They'd go into the dock. Mm-hmm. The dock was based on, I guess, early English. Um, we've all seen lots of movies where prisoners are in the dock. It's an area that is defined. It confines you. You know that when you're in the dock, you are under arrest. Mm-hmm. And also, most importantly, is that your liberty has been taken from you. You are allowed to do a few things like breathe and possibly pass wind. Not like one night with that woman, that actress. Should we touch on that, or is that in a future story? We've covered that before. Okay, yeah. anyway, I believe so. We've so she that, completely yeah. lost the plot, and we know what she did. Yeah. But uh, it's a very, very harrowing time. I have never been arrested. 
I've never had my liberty taken from me. Now, when they come into the station, they're generally handcuffed. Um, and it's a very... I mean, I can only imagine. So I, what I used to do is put myself in their shoes and truly try and treat the people because they haven't been to court. And we all know one of the pillars of our justice system. Innocent till proven guilty. Yeah. And it's really important to at least give people the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Yeah. So the process of fingerprinting, as you so beautifully described in Chapter 8, you would get this tube of the blackest, stickiest ink that mysteriously would end up, no matter how careful you were, it would end up everywhere. You would prepare a pad and you'd have a roller and you would squeeze this ink onto the the pad. Mm. You would then get the roller and you would start to sort of dab it. And, I mean, just read your really good description to sort of have it explained in in fairly minute detail. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that it used to make this terrible squishy noise. Yeah, I said um, um, a a wet, squelchy farting sound. Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly how it sounded. But you had to get the entire ink block covered neatly, basically in the same thickness of ink throughout the... sort of to cover the entire plate. You would then get the fingerprint form that was divided into left hand and right hand Mm -hmm. and also an area for palm prints because palm prints, whilst they were not classified, were really important because at a lot of major crime, particularly sexual assaults, quite often the offender um, would go into the bathroom. He may use the toilet, but he also... And there are some classic cases where they would touch a towel rail, for example, and leave a palm print. And sometimes they'd leave palm prints but no fingerprints. So you'd get the guy, generally a guy... I mean, that's not a a Freudian slip there. In fairness to the male-to-female ratio of prisoners, Mm -hmm. when I was a police officer, it was... And I can hand on heart tell everyone out there that it was at least... 95% 95% men. The women were, were, were fairly rare. And um, you'd, you'd, you'd fingerprint them. And mostly, I mean, it's a big thing to have someone in custody to then, I mean, the whole sort of awareness and the, the realisation that you're actually in custody. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. It's not a shitty drama. It's not in a book. You're actually, it's you, you're in the dock, you're under arrest, you're about to be charged, and the things that must go through your mind is, is just bloody incredible. Mm. You'd fingerprint the, uh, the person, and as you said, at least 90% of the people you fingerprinted were very compliant because you needed them to relax, to relax their shoulders, to almost give you the ability like a puppeteer Mm-hmm. to control their limbs because if they resisted at all and sometimes you'd get prisoners like hardcore prisoners that were basically just total fuckwits and they every single time you went to ink one of their fingers and then roll it 
they'd smudge it. And if you had a smudged fingerprint, it couldn't be read by the fingerprint guys at the Central Fingerprint Bureau. Because what happens is those fingerprints that are taken that night are collected and they are couriered into the Central Fingerprint Bureau all the time, day in, day out, 365 days a year. Mm. And they are classified within days. And the amazing thing about fingerprints, Paul, is that quite often you would have a prisoner who'd been picked up on a minor offence and let's not take from drink driving, but in the grand scheme of things, if the person was a multiple rapist and an escapee, drink driving was a relatively minor charge. But they would come in, they'd give a a fake name. You had no way of knowing who this person was and then the most terrible thing that could ever happen as a as a general duties police officer, was to find out that you'd fingerprinted a prisoner for drink driving or shoplifting. Mm -hmm. Three days later, the Central Fingerprint Bureau notifies you at the station saying that that person was in fact an escapee from Long Bay Jail or Pentridge or, or one of the big jails in Australia. He'd been serving time for armed holdups, murder. He had half a dozen sexual assaults under his belt and he's gone imagine i mean it's different now with computers mm. but back in the day you 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 weren't working in real time you had to wait for the results to come back yeah of course and then the photographing it was so archaic the camera as you said was it was a shitbox camera it looked as though it was worth 5 dollars and you had to make up this little kind of board and you'd put all their details in and you would actually hold it had a long um, like a like an aluminium rod that was at least three feet long or a meter long yeah so you'd position that sort of near the the chin of the offender and you'd get them to look at at the lens but then you'd also like in the movies you'd get them to turn 90 degrees so you'd get their profile mm-hmm. um so you're compositing and compiling all this information on a prisoner and then came the the, the part of the, this whole story that I always found fairly unusual because there was a whole section on the fingerprint form where you had to ask them, did they have any tattoos? Now, unlike today where, dare I say, every second person has a tattoo, mm. but back in those days, tattoos were primarily associated with members of the Navy and possibly other defence forces and criminals. Okay. And crims that had come in, mm-hmm. they had tattoos that were indescribable, some of them. And a lot of them were jail tats. They were done in jail using needle and ink. And stuff. Yeah. Sorry? So they get a pen and they get the ink from Yeah, and they case. just and they jab and and they did all sorts of weird things and they'd quite often proudly show you and I'll never forget the night that this guy dropped his pants and he showed me his penis. Um, but the penis was actually an elephant trunk. So his whole that that whole region was an amazing elephant head. Okay, with his penis being the trunk, which I thought sure. was, you know, that was fairly uh, fairly unusual. Another guy I remember he had his nipples tattooed. Yep, sweet and sour, uh. which was interesting. These Ooh. are ones that I remember. Another guy had a dotted line around his neck. Uh And underneath it, it said, cut along the dotted line. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Incredible. And then you also had to talk to prisoners about any amputations. Um, and then I think, Paul, later on we're going to, maybe in another chapter, I think we get to talk about that terrible... You know some of the the, the mutilation, self mutilation that people did, which I had to, you had to see it, and and of course if you were a female station constable, mm-hmm. some of these prisoners would 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 willingly drop their pants to show them. Uh, I also uh, I remember another guy, he turned he dropped his pants, he turned around, bent over, and there was a, a pair of hands crawling out of his ass. Which is quite artistic. Now, oh, this is a tattoo, not an actual person escaping his butt. No, not a tiny person. Okay. That had been concealed. Sure. And you also had to search the prisoners. And then um, the detectives went... And I was a... I was a look, to be a station constable was a very, very important job. Very important. And two detectives um, brought down a, uh, a really, really heavy crim. He'd, he'd shot someone. Mm-hmm. And he was built, he was massive. I mean, he was. I reckon he was close to seven foot tall, and maybe four foot across. He was just he was gargantuan. He was actually a giant. Um, he'd been in the military. He towered over me. The detectives were standing there, and the station sergeant. Um, he said to me, "Okay, John, you've got to search the prisoner." And I searched this prisoner, and the detectives were standing there looking at me, and it was really stressful. And I searched this prisoner, and this is one of these moments where I realised, and it was a very good lesson, this prisoner could have crushed my skull with one hand easily, but he was very compliant. I think he'd done a bit of a deal, something had gone down with the detectives um, prior to him being charged. He may have done a bit of a plea plea deal, plea bargain. And I searched, and the sergeant, uh, his name was Joe Harding, an amazing sergeant, he he looked at me sort of from, you know, how you lower your, your glasses and he sort of peered above his glasses at me with the two detectives, this this guy, I remember his name, um, which I won't use, but he had a very unusual surname and um, they're all standing there and 
Joe Harding said to me, John, are you sure you've searched him thoroughly? And I foolishly said, yes, yeah. And then this prisoner, he uh, reached down through the front of his pants, down into his groin, and he pulled out a wad that I would estimate had about maybe 30,000 cash that he'd shoved down his balls, and he pulled it out. And these two detectives looked at me with disdain. And Joe Harding rolled his eyes back and the prisoner got a real thrill because I hadn't done my job. And from and believe you me, uh, Paul and listeners, I, from that day on, I learned a very valuable lesson about searching prisoners um, and you search them properly. And then, of course, you would take the prisoner. If, if, if they were granted bail, they were then allowed to go home that night with a date set into the future, generally within a fortnight, and it was a Tuesday at North Sydney Court where they would all come back for plea or mention, which means you could then go before the court with your counsel, with your representation. Mm-hmm. You'd appear before the magistrate, in this case North Sydney, and you could, you could um, plead guilty to an offence. And the magistrate, to be honest with you, really liked that because it cleared things really quickly. However, you had the right to plead not guilty. You mm-hmm. would enter into a plea of not guilty. You know how the, ma- the judge or the magistrate, it's magistrates at the lower court, judges in the higher court. So in the lower court, when you were in the dock and you would present yourself in court, you would always address the magistrate as your worship. And some people, because of the movies, would say, yes, your honour. And sometimes a magistrate would look at them and say, I'm not a judge. I'm a magistrate. So magistrates, your worship, judges, your honour. And what would happen is you would be given a date and then you could um, develop a defence through your, through your defence counsel and, mm-hmm. um, and it was dealt with that way. But if, if on the night of the, of the charge, if it was a serious charge, like um, in last week's episode with the, you know, the, the guys in the panel van. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they were charged with numerous offences and it took hours and hours and hours to charge them. But when they eventually came down from the detective's office, which was up the road in Babcock House, the station constable with the sergeant, because it's the sergeant that accepts the charge. You can have these detectives come down with prisoners and the, the, the sergeant, who's the, the station sergeant, he has the right to refuse the charge. I don't think I've ever seen that happen, but... The buck stops with them. They're the ones okay. that actually enter the charge into the book and they use a massive stamp and they've got all the stamps for all the different types of crimes and they kind of fill in the fill in the blanks. I don't know whether it's still done that way today, but th- these used to be massive books. It's probably done online now. I'd, I'd really like to know. Mm. And then if that prisoner had had his bail refused, then part two, which was to lead them And quite often you did this by yourself. Bearing in mind, there was no real way at North Sydney Police Station to escape Mm -hmm. the station except through the front door. Okay. So the chances of that would be quite slim. Yeah. But you would handcuff the prisoner. You would then escort them and the sergeant would say to you, okay, John, cell one, cell two. Uh, And these cells were... They were truly Victorian. They were, they were just 
terrible cells with with probably a hundred years of graffiti on the walls. Yeah, when we did the um, uh, Tegan is part of a comedy group called Watson, and we did a show called Who's Afraid of the Dark over at the old Melbourne Jail. And Dad, you came and saw this show. It was like an immersive full-on show where we had the run of the Melbourne jail. It started in this one room and then kind of went out into all the different cells. And one of the things I had to do was actually wait pretty much hiding in one of these old, you know, hundred and something year old cells Mm. in the dark for about 20 minutes every night, Mm. you know, from about uh, 7.45 to about, you know, 8.05. And the things written on these walls were just heinous. I know they stopped using these watch rooms and cells in the early 90s, Mm. um, but there was some stuff there, you know, really old vintage graffiti and mm. i would say 90 percent of it was viciously anti-cop oh yeah very much so yeah um the only thing that these uh cells had in terms of furniture was a freestanding stainless steel toilet so can you imagine being in one of these cells with say 10 guys and you've got to take a dump so you drop your dax you shit. So everyone in that tiny room can, they can hear you shitting. They can smell your shit. What's the etiquette there? Do you turn around? Does everyone turn around or do you try and assert your dominance by watching? What, what must I, it actually be like? I just think to, to actually, look, you know me, I, you know I can't go into a toilet, a public toilet, if there's someone in that within the vicinity of 50 metres. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually had to go to the toilet this morning down at the beach and I was praying there'd be no one in there and there was no one in there mm. and it was great. But um, look, I just can't. I think it's very dehumanising. Yeah. Um, but in, in jail... Is that the if, point or is that... Do you I, want people to feel no, I think it's designed. You can't have a, an area where they can kind of go into a cubicle because they have to be in full view. Yeah. Um, and Paul, I hate to say this, but one of the reasons they have to be in full view, and as sad as this may sound, they might kill themselves. They might kill themselves. They might um, take their own lives. Yeah. And um, and also, Paul, you know that in future, some of the stories in the future about well, some of the terrible things that happened inside some of those cells. It's North very Sydney. dark. Yeah, some of the stuff that happens when yeah. someone is out of view for a, what it was a few minutes. Yeah, um, minutes. And yeah. Um, you know, you can. There are techniques that they can use. I'm not going to sort of go on about, but let's just say, I mean, we used to take their shoelaces off when they went in, if they were a risk. But um, again, there are other things. I mean, I guess when you're in custody, particularly if you've been in custody quite a few times, you you know the routine, you know... Um, look, I'm not going to... A part of me wants to sort of talk about the different methods, um, and that's amazing. I mean, just think about making rope, how, how you could make rope. Can you think about how you could make rope in a cell? I would say shoelaces, but they take your they shoes take off those, you, which yeah. is why when you and um, Julian kind of planned to get you in there, you had to take your shoes off because the prisoner wouldn't have shoes on. Yep, yep. But, okay. Paul, you know if you get a piece of human hair, that hair has no strength? You can uh, break it easily, can't you? Yeah, but if you get a whole bunch of it, right? Yeah, so if you plaited hair together... You could make um, make make rope, but there's also something else in that toilet that's really, really, it's standing right and it's there right in front of everyone, and it's something you could actually make incredibly strong rope out of. Wait, toilet paper? Correct. Really? Think about it. You'd want two ply, obviously. 
Not that cheap stuff they have. No, but can you imagine, Paul, if you got a few meters of it? (sighs) Yeah, okay. And you just strengthen it to the point of it can hold um, a fair bit of weight. You would plait it, basically. Plait it, plait it, yep. And then you would... You'd tie it to uh, one of the the bars. Let's say okay. Let's. Fl- I want to flip that because that's a little sad. Let's mm. say you were trying to stage an escape from the. Cell. Oh, good. You, okay. Wait. Yep. Wait for the guy. Wait, wait for the Brilliant. guard to come in. You know, Definitely. one of you is groaning in the corner, going, "Oh, my belly! I got a fuzzy belly." And then you would need something to use as a weapon. I assume the toilet, the ball cock in the toilet, is probably not. No, you can't get enough. to it. You can't no. get to it. It's sealed. It's a. It's, re- it's all behind walls. Just okay. you've just got um, a little button you can press in. Mm-hmm. You've got toilet paper. Yep. If you really, really want to take this to the to the to the extreme mm-hmm. of safety, yeah, you would have a system where they have to shout out, and then you would have to hand through very carefully, mm-hmm. and you would dish out squares of toilet paper. Right. Okay. Um, and in this COVID time. Um, I can tell you and the listeners that there was a toilet, but there was no sink. So how do you wash your hands? People might think, well, hang on a sec. But that is actually fairly important in terms of cleanliness because other police officers and other prisoners. So you could have a prisoner in there who'd um, you know, raped a five-year-old girl or boy, and I'm not kidding, and in the same cell would be someone who hadn't paid a parking ticket that had turned yeah, that, into a, into a warrant. That blows my mind. That just blows my mind. Mm. So now I'm talking about the 1980s in Sydney. Yeah. And we had a couple of cells there. We had a cell that was really... So we had one cell that was like a communal cell that could hold comfortably... I say comfortably. Um, and there's nowhere to sit. You either sit on the floor... Or you stand up. Now that cell, you could walk, and it had bars. I'm talking a hundred and something year old cell. It was, and in midwinter in Sydney, when it can get down near zero at one or two in the morning, could be pissing down outside. It's dimly lit. It's it is actually, it's creepy, and you have these guys, only guys, um. In the cell, you could have you could have ten or fifteen blokes in there, and they don't know each other. Yeah, and you've got oh god, it's just and the problem is, of course, if you're intoxicated and you've committed a really really minor offence, like you broke a stool at a, at a local pub, you'd be taken back to the station. But you know the police had a duty of care as well to not let you out on the street. Yeah. And they would put you in this cell. Did it ever and, backfire? Oh, kind of mate, types of people seriously. Together? Sometimes you'd, people would be bashed by prisoners. Mm. And some prisoners... See, that's the other thing, Paul, about putting someone into the cells. You had to pat them down. Mm. Now imagine if you patted someone down and they had a knife concealed on them. Imagine if they had some type of knife um, with... Um, tape around the blade, you could comfortably insert that into your anus. Comfortably. You'd okay. walk into the cell, the police leave, you then pull that thing out of your ass. Oh, boy. Um, you then unwrap the tape off the blade. So you've got a, a knife, like a small dagger or a shim, they call them in jail. 
and it's also got shit on it. So when you stab or cut a uh, another person, you've not only have you got the 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 like the the blade entering and cutting the flesh, mm. but it's covered in shit. Okay, so we're talking infections. You just you can't imagine. Now imagine if you were that police officer that searched that person, mm. and you missed the knife. And a mate of mine that used to work undercover, he the only weapon he ever had was a hacksaw blade that he'd sharpened himself, and he used thick masking tape, and it was taped to his spine because he worked deep cover. And whenever he'd get patted down by bikey gangs or whoever, they did not feel the blade on his spine. Yeah. And he's the same guy, Paul, as you know, that was taken in one night to Darlinghurst Police Station and he had the shit beaten out of him by his fellow officers because they didn't know he was undercover. Heavy. I actually didn't know that. Oh, well, that's another whole, that's there's a whole probably, story. There's probably listeners screaming at me right now because I've, I've been told that before and I just forgot. No, no, no. It's Look, mate, there are a million stories. But, um, God, this, you know, this has all come from your, your, your little chapter about, you know, the process of processing prisoners. And, of course, the women were not allowed to be kept at North Sydney Police Station for obvious reasons. Reasons of allegations could be made that police officers had assaulted them, sexually assaulted them, and they would be taken over to central cells at Central Police Station. And boy, oh boy, there is another story, but not for today. Well, I'm frankly just delighted that the uh, the shortest chapter in the book kind of led to this much really interesting stuff. Um, is there anything else from the chapter, Dad, that you feel like you'd like to kind of flesh out before we uh, wrap this up and make way for uh, Jane Harper and Eric Banner later this week? What would you like to kind of close out with you mentioned my white volkswagen my immaculate volkswagen which was the 13 millionth vw ever made and how do i know that it had a pewter plaque circular Mm -hmm. on the drop down glove box lid it was something of of a rarity it was immaculate and it was for sale at a car yard on the pacific highway um north of where where I worked at North Sydney Police Station. Yeah. And I'd gone in, and I remember the price of it. It was $3,500, which back then was a shitload of money. And it was the... I just couldn't... I couldn't believe that this magnificent vehicle was actually in the yard. And uh, I tried to sort of negotiate, and I was I was pissing in the wind. I was wasting my time. And I was a bit forlorn, and I went back to the... You've said in the, in the book it was my uh, buddy. Uh, but actually... Believe it or not, it was Joe Harding, the sergeant that was in the station that fateful night that I missed all that money down the guy's pants. Oh. And he said to me, he was an amazing, he was, he was a real, he was like a grandfather. He was, he was the font of knowledge. He was calm, never saw him lose it. He was, he was, he was a, the quintessential nice guy and he put his arm around my uh, sort of over my shoulders and said john um you know i hear you're interested in this particular volkswagen and he said let's let's go up the road and it was a saturday arvo and he just came out with me he he drove the police car which is lovely because you rarely saw a sergeant or person of that rank driving and we drove up the highway towards uh st leonard's 
and there was a Holden dealership on the corner up there and uh, he made it very, very obvious the way he pulled up that, you know, the, here was a police car and he got out, I stayed in the car and he went over and he spoke to the salesman and uh, he basically negotiated a deal that was quite frankly embarrassing. It was so good. In fact, I don't think that, that car dealership made any money on that particular sale. And I was the um, the proud owner of this beautiful white VW Beetle. And you touched uh, on, in that particular chapter, Paul, how after night shifts, which were from 11pm till 7am, um, you never got to shut your eyes. You were on the go all the time, yeah. seven nights straight, midwinter. I would leave the station. It could be foggy. It was wet. It was cold. It was miserable. My VW was parked at the back of the station where police used to keep their cars, their private vehicles. And I would head home and I'd stop at the first set of lights and fall asleep. And I would be, uh, if I was lucky, there'd be a car. If it was a Sunday morning, you could have waited 10, 15 minutes for another car. Mm. I, I had no idea. And then all of a sudden, someone behind you would toot. And I'd realize that. Um, I'd fallen asleep at the lights. And this would happen all the time. I was just so, so tired. It's extremely, ex- yeah, it's extremely relatable. It's so, you know, that that tiredness, that, that it's, like, it's like jet lag. It's really, really difficult. And you've got to push through it at least till you get home. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then try and get to sleep. And I, the, the longest I could ever sleep in the police force um, during the days mm-hmm. between nights uh, would be five hours. I'd always wake up about... I'd go to bed about 8 a.m. and wake up at 1. And Christine somehow would keep you and Anne quiet. And she'd take you to the park, which was a real trauma and drama for her. Yeah. Because, you know, you were little kids and wanted to get out and... and you know, because if I woke up at, say, if I put my head down at 8 and woke up at 9.30, I couldn't go back to sleep. I needed that solid five hours. Mm. And, and yeah, look, shift work, it's tough. And it takes years to get over it. And I, and I thank God I don't do it anymore. Well, you know, I feel like this is sort of one of your new jobs. And it's, you know, I, it, it keeps me awake as opposed to puts me asleep. So I'm really grateful for that. Well... I'm really happy we made uh, a kind of a meal out of chapter eight. You know, that was really, uh, really surprising. Um, I really enjoyed that. But chapter nine, which is next week, is called Get In Loser, We're Going Shopping, uh, which sort of deals with Len Beater's weird kind of behavior around traffic infractions. It's a really, really interesting chapter for anyone who's ever been pulled over um, or has even the vaguest of beefs with highway patrol or getting traffic fines or cops they think of being a little bit kind of petty. It's a really interesting chapter, so make sure you do your reading uh, in time for that. And also, because Christmas is coming up, make sure you grab a copy of Electric Blue for the special person in your life or grab yourself another copy, seriously. Also, also, this Friday, Jane Harper, author of The Dry, and Eric Banner, who plays Aaron Falk in the movie uh, adaptation of The Dry, which is absolutely incredible. They're both coming on the show. It's going to be really, really huge. Dad and I are going to do a little bit of an intro and an outro. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a really big week for fans of crime stuff. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let us know your thoughts over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash loose units. 
And if you already haven't heard it in time for Christmas, head back and listen to Red Hot Australian Christmas, Tegan Higginbotham's incredible Christmas play, which is on this feed, and uh, all the proceeds go to Standby Support. And if you haven't already donated to Standby Support, get off your butt and do it. Go to standbysupport.com.au. They have a donate button on there, which they put there specially for you. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Uh, we'll see you later this week for more Loose Units. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Regards. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.